This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. And welcome to Best Bets for Pets. I'm your show host, Michelle Fern. Today, we're going to talk to the author of this wonderful book that she wrote called The Other Family Doctor. And it really gives an excellent perspective on what it's like to be a veterinarian and also her, you know, her patients. And there's a lot of other messages, but a really wonderful book. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Kitty Poo Club reinvented the litter box. No more scrubbing that stinky plastic tray. Or worrying, oh my God, do my guests smell that? No cleaning, no scrubbing, no more stink. You are going to love it. Your cats are going to love it. Go to kittypooclub.com and when you order, save 30% on your first auto ship. Visit kittypooclub.com, use code MEOW30 at checkout, and join the club, the Kitty Poo Club. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back, everyone. I would like to introduce Dr. Karen Fine. She is the author of The Other Family Doctor, A Veterinarian Explores What Animals Can Teach Us About Love, Life, and Mortality. Welcome, Dr. Karen Fine. Thank you so much for having me. Is it okay if I call you Dr. Karen? Oh, sure. You can call me Karen. Okay. So, great book. Really great book. Thank you. I've read and had a lot of books um, on Best Bets for Pets, and I've never had one that's quite like this, that a veterinarian finds the time to write and goes into detail and also even just explores other types of you know medicine that's out there. But enough about what I think. Why did you write the book? I really wrote the book because I felt a need in my clients and especially around the issue of pet loss. I felt that a lot of people were feeling guilty and very anxious and grieving so much. And I think a lot of people felt like it was them and them alone. And so I really felt like I wanted to write not only about my experiences as a, as a veterinarian with my patients, but also about my own personal experiences with my animal and just sort of the depth of the human animal bond that I get to see every day. And I think I think we don't always realize how common it is, these wonderful, wonderful relationships that we have. So I'm very fortunate because I have a lot of people in my life who also have close relationships with their animals, but some people don't. Well, I'm glad you wrote about that. And, you know, when I think about the book, yes, there was a lot of it that did deal with pet loss and, you know, other experiences when you're having a pet and adoption and, but also um, your personal life as well, because you discussed, you know, why you became a veterinarian and all of that. Why did you decide to put that in there and personal traumas that you've gone through as well? Yeah, it was really when I, I found out about the increased risk of suicide in the veterinary profession. And I, I really had a, a kind of moment of realizing that, wow, it's not just me. And that these things that I had struggled with and sort of been very stoic about 
and pretended even to myself that I didn't struggle. I realized that, wow, this is really an industry-wide issue. And I wanted to kind of share what it's really like. And I think a lot of people don't, you know, people don't understand. And I think it's something that a lot of times veterinarians don't talk about, even among ourselves, is some of these deep things that we, you know, some of the difficulties that we have daily, and it can feel isolating. And I think many people mean really well, but most vets have heard, you know, people will say, I always wanted to be a vet, or I'd love to be a veterinarian, but I could never do what you do. And it's, um, it's very well meant, and I always take it how it's meant. But it also feels kind of isolating. Like, you know, you're you're doing this thing that, you know, that nobody nobody wants to know about or can understand. So I, I just wanted to explore that. And, you know, both for veterinarians and for for pet lovers to sort of see what it's like on the other side of the stethoscope. When I read that, I was shocked. I was surprised because I've heard that medical doctors, because of the stress that's involved, and the long hours, but you don't hear it from the veterinarian side of you as, you know, the other family doctor. And you also, like when you started, like I was talking to one of our veterinarians and I didn't realize that there were so few veterinarian schools. And when you started in the 80s, there was only... I think there were 27 when I started and there's not that many more now. I'm not sure exactly how many there are now, but there's not that many more. See, that's crazy for the whole country. I think when there was someone else that I was talking to, I don't want to age him, but but um, one of our veterinarians, and he said when he started, there was 14. He started wow. before you. But that's crazy. I mean, there's, I don't know how many medical schools, I mean, tons compared right. to. And I don't think people understand. If you can just um, explain the difference, because people think, oh, you know, you're that, so you, you know do a little bit of schooling and this and that, and then you're done. But you have to know, like for a medical doctor, they just work on humans. All the bodies are pretty much the same, but you have to know different species. Right. And oftentimes humans as well, because a lot of, say, medications start out with people and then they become available for animals and a lot of treatments. So yeah, I mean, we're very much aware of human medicine as well. And yeah, so it's it's four years of college, which with, with a very strong focus on science, very similar to medical school. And the college I went to for undergraduate did not have a pre-veterinary program. So when that happens, you're sort of lumped in with the medical students and the pre-med students, which is still, you know, it was a good college experience. Not every college has a pre-veterinary program, but you have to take all the hard sciences with labs and it's very rigorous. And you're basically told if you want to pursue this, you can't play a sport and you can't do junior year abroad. So that really, you know, somewhat limits your your college experience. I think I really would have liked doing junior year abroad. And honestly, I think for medical practitioners, doing junior year abroad or a semester abroad would be hugely helpful in terms of relating to people that are different than you, which is a skill that practitioners really need. And anyways, it's four years of undergraduate, and then you go to veterinary school, which is very similar to medical school. The difference is when you graduate from veterinary school, you can go out and practice. You can also specialize and do a residency, 
typically that's done after an internship, which many vets do an internship for one year and then a residency to specialize and become say a cardiologist or an ophthalmologist typically is another three years. So in that sense, it's very similar to human medicine and the cost for the four years of veterinary school is very expensive. So it's a huge issue about veterinary student debt. People graduate with $200,000 worth of student loans and you're not in a field that with a high income that you're going to be able to pay those back after a few years fairly easily um, many veterinarians really struggle to pay back those loans so it's a it's a challenging profession financially and that's really gotten worse i think over the last few years and there's there's a lot more things we do now for our animals as well there's a lot more equipment and a lot more things to to learn about, I think there's a, the ability to treat more conditions more thoroughly, if and that makes sense. Probably. And specialized. Yeah, they're more specialists. Yeah, a lot more specialists. I mean, gosh, years ago, this is, wow, I'm at least 25 years ago, my first dog that was mine broke her tooth and there was a doggy dentist. I thought, I had no idea there was a doggy dentist. And right. uh, I was in Los Angeles. It happened to be the doggy dentist. The only one was in Beverly Hills. So it was expensive then. It would probably be like five times the price now. But it was it blew my mind that there was a doggy dentist. And then I had to go to another specialist because of her eyes. And she just mm -hmm. jumped over something rather than follow the path. But now as we become, I mean, we're making, you know, we're changing our pets' diets. We're getting them the best treats and toys and all of that. Why not more specialists? Because as you said, the animal and the human and animal bond is getting stronger and stronger. Absolutely. And when I was first in practice, in the say mid nineties, there were specialists, but a lot of people, if I mentioned, you know, you could take Fluffy to a specialist, people would sort of laugh in my face fairly often, but I always mentioned it if I thought it was something that I would consider recommending. But now, you know, it's very rare for somebody to sort of go, ha, huh, you know, that, <laughs> you oh, know, wow. what are you suggesting? Most people actually go or consider going depending on what the, you know, the issue is. And, um, you know, many of them have already been to a different specialist or, or something. So it's much more, much more common. This is something I'm curious about. And then we're going to talk more about the book after the break. But we have a couple minutes before the break. What is it like to meet a patient for uh, two questions? So what is it like to meet a patient for the first time? Meaning patient, I guess, both the human and the animal, the dog or the cat. Well, I really want to get to know them, both of them, as individuals. And so it's really sort of like learning their story. And uh, especially with cats, I love cats. They can be challenging as patients. So there's they're such a wide variety of cats. There's some cats that are, you know, growling and hissing and spitting before, you know, before they come out of the carrier. And there's some cats that are just, you know, lovey-dovey. And uh, I mean, to some extent, the same with dogs, but with cats, it's a little bit more 
there's less you can do if you have a cat we say is fractious is difficult to handle whereas with dogs you can really work with them and try to that like the person can work with them at home try to bring them into the vet clinic more often give them really good treats try to get them really comfortable with cats it's just more difficult it's sort of like if they're going to be difficult to handle at the clinic then they're going to be difficult to handle at the clinic we're having a little bit more luck with some tranquilizers that we send home lately you know so that's been a, a good thing for for many kitties but but yeah so basically when you know when I meet them for the first time I want to see who they are as individuals and what what's important what is this um, person's concern who's you know what are their concerns who's bringing in their kitty what are they concerned about is it anything I can address and meeting the kitty I want them to feel comfortable and I want them to feel safe I don't want them to feel threatened or anxious. I'm glad you brought that up. Cats are a challenge. I had to because I didn't start early enough. And one of my cats is likes to hide. I didn't start my early enough before the appointment and I couldn't catch her. So I had to mm-hmm. reschedule the appointment, which was on me. I was I was a bad pet parent because it's not your fault with cats. I mean, cats are just really tough. So it's a very common occurrence. She's the worst. Charlotte's the hider. She just, you know, to my uh, spouse, he has no problem. But me, mm. she's what we call misunderstood. That's mm-hmm. what we've been <laughs> Um Also, what do you find is the most frustrating? And this would be from the humans because your cat is how your cat is. You know, like you said, they, they're stoic creatures. They have a lot of personalities. But what do you find most frustrating about your pet peeve about the humans that you see? In terms of cats, I would say when I was doing house calls, I would ask people to put their cats into the bathroom because to just to have them corralled. So one thing that was frustrating would be if people didn't do that. I mean, in some cats, you can go pick them up and they're just a lump on the sofa and they're totally fine. But, you know, I don't know till I go there. And they quickly suss out that I'm no ordinary visitor, you know, if I'm doing a house call. But yeah, it was really hard if we're chasing a cat around and around and they're under the sofa and they're behind a curtain and they're, you know, because if we do finally catch the kitty, they're very stressed and anxious. And it's just not the way that I'd like to start my my exam of them. So, you know, that was one thing. And then I guess, you know, cat wise, I think, you know, some people still say, you know, well, you know, it's like, I haven't brought my cat in for a checkup for seven years, because he's been healthy. And I think the misunderstanding that well, cats seem okay, so that everything should be fine and they they need an annual exam just like dogs and typically they need a rabies vaccine as well and i know here it's the it's the state law but it's hard for me when someone comes in and then you know we haven't seen the animal for a long time and then i'm noticing something like a heart murmur or weight loss and i have no idea how long this has been going on for you know is this how much weight loss or you know i don't i don't i can't track it you know whereas if they've come in every year you can say oh okay you know they're really they've you know i know you think they've lost weight but they're really only down you know half a pound so let's keep an eye on it but that's not something you can do if you haven't seen the kitty in seven years Exactly. And when they do have something wrong, it's hard to detect. Right. Cats are very good at hiding, hiding their problems. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. 
everyone. Michelle Fern here. You know, I love my cats, but one thing I didn't love is my cat's old food. Not only was it stinky, it seemed to be real old school. And I thought, why isn't cat food more like 21st century made with better ingredients? Then I discovered Smalls. Smalls cat food is protein-packed recipes made with preservative-free ingredients you'd find in your fridge. And it's delivered right to your front door. Smalls was started way back in 2017 by a couple guys that were home cooking cat food in small batches for their friends. Today, Smalls has served millions of meals to cats all over America. I've been serving my cat Smalls for the last 30 days, and I see a big difference. Dennis, his hair is so much shinier. He has more energy, and he seems to feel a lot healthier. He used to be a little bit stiff, slow to move, not anymore. So I'm excited that I see such a big difference in my cat's overall health. The team at Smalls is so confident your cat will love their product that you can try it risk-free. That means they'll refund you if your cat won't eat their food. So remember, higher quality ingredients means a healthier and happier life for your kitty. So head to smalls.com slash petlife and use the promo code petlife at checkout for 50% off your order plus free shipping. That's the best offer you'll find, but you have to use my code petlife for 50% off your first order. One last time, that's promo code PETLIFE for 50% off your first order plus free shipping. Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Pet <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. We're talking to Dr. Karen Fine, who is the author of The Other Family Doctor. So, Dr. Karen, you have several animal stories and in your book about different patients that you have, or you have, maybe still have, maybe had. And you also talked about several chapters on death. And as we talked about in the first part, you mentioned that you wrote this book because so many one veterinarians deal with death and even how you know pet parents deal with death. Can you share with us one of the stories that I know you have a couple personal stories about your pets if you want to share one of those or one of the other stories that you've shared. I like the one that was that talked about the good death, even though I think oh, that was yeah. yeah, I just I had somebody who called me and um a lot of times so I did house calls for 25 years, and then at the beginning of COVID, I ended up closing my practice and then decided to to close permanently. And so somebody called me, oftentimes, quite often people would call me and say, you know, it's getting close to being time for my animal. You know, they, they have a terminal condition, they're failing, they're sort of on a hospice situation. And I just wanted to talk to you and get a sense of what this would look like. And I always liked it when people did that because then I could go over things with them before it becomes, okay, now we need an appointment and it's, you know, sort of crisis time. So people would know what to expect. And this woman called me and she said, my animals had a really good life and I just want them to have a really good death. And as I recall, I didn't end up meeting her or her animal in person, but it just really stuck with me that she said that. And I think, you know, we all hope that we ourselves would and that we would want that for our animals. And we do the best we can, but it doesn't always work that way. 
okay. You know, sometimes we end up feeling that things didn't go as well as we may have liked. But euthanasia is actually means good death. So it is something that, you know, most people believe in. Every once in a while, I'll run across someone who just says, I don't believe in euthanasia. And that's difficult when they have an animal who is suffering to the point beyond what we can cope with medically. So um, fortunately, most people for animals really are, you know, able to say, okay, it's a difficult, very, very difficult, excruciating decision to make. And I understand because I've made that decision with my own animals. But ultimately, it's, you know, we do it because it's better for the animal. We know what's happening. We know that they're only getting worse and they've only got, you know, a short time left and it's going to be not anything like quality time. So that's typically when, you know, we're having the conversation. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's good when people think about it beforehand. Or a lot of times people have been through it already. So they kind of have an idea of what to expect and what they want it to look like. I have still had the guilt from Mr. Zeus who passed in August of 2020 because I took him in and they wanted me to do the euthanasia, the you know, the shot. And it wasn't my regular vet and I wasn't comfortable with the vet that was there. And I thought, you know, maybe it's better for him. Can we hydrate him and see? Maybe he'll do a little better. And he was okay and then passed that night. And I still have guilt that I should have just done it, you know. He had a good life. But at the very end, it was, you know, getting there. He was like, like mid-size, 45 pounds. And he was slowly, you know, getting a little bit lethargic and not eating as much, lost weight. So it was getting near his time. But I still feel guilty. It's only a day because he passed, like he had a hard night and passed that morning. But I still beat myself up, you know. When it's time to let go, it's time to let go. It's very difficult. And I actually wrote an article about that guilt for the New York Times that was in the New York Times about a month ago. And the the link is on my my website. And I wrote that there's something called hindsight bias, that when we look back, our minds kind of trick us into thinking that, well, with, with the knowledge we have now, why didn't I make a different decision? But at that time, you were doing what you felt was best at the time with the information that you had. And, you know, certainly when you are, you know, where you are now and you look back, it's just such a common thing. I see so many people that feel guilty for years. And that's, sort of becomes part of their narrative about their story with their pet. And I have felt the same way myself. I think it's a natural thing, but I try to remind myself that my animal would not want me to feel that way. They would not want me to feel guilty. And also that I made the best decisions that I could at the time with the information that I had. I play a similar story in my head. Zeus was like, I called him my angel boy because he was so like gentle and sweet. And he's like a 45 pound border collie, flat hair, retriever mix, black dog. So he could look and be intimidating if he was jumping around and he did like to jump and run around and he was younger, but he was always so good. Like my other dog would stand up and you to drive with her in the car. She was in the middle. She wouldn't sit still. He just went right behind the seat, sat down, and that was it. He didn't move at all. He was just always so good. And I think in my heart, I think that he wanted to spare me to make of making the decision. 
Yeah, I think that happens too. You know, when they go on their own like that, it's like, you know what, they're taking it into their their own hands. Yeah. Now, not to talk quite about death, but let's also talk about you also practice some alternative medicine. I don't know if they're still calling Mm -hmm. it alternative, um, holistic. Yes, yes. So it is still called alternative medicine. There's many different names, complementary medicine. And I like to call it integrative medicine because that's how I practice is integrating the traditional Western medicine with the traditional Chinese medicine, the the alternative medicine. So it's really, I really enjoy being able to look at my patients and think, ah, wow, this is a really good candidate for acupuncture or some Chinese herbs. And then maybe we can address some of the conditions with, you know, medicine, but maybe we can do a decreased dose or something like that. So I I have a lot of patients I treat with acupuncture and herbs as well as Western medicine. How do cats do with that? I could see on the dog, but are cats a little bit more difficult or it just depends on the cat? It's a great question and they can be. So I feel like cats are either one or the other. And I actually did a house call one time for a cat. The other woman wanted um, the cat to have acupuncture. We couldn't even catch the cat. (laughs) So she had the cat in one room. And after sort of chasing this poor kitty around the room for quite a while, she finally said, I think he's declining medical treatment, (laughs) which was really funny. But I've had many, many cats that just love acupuncture. And they, you know, I, I think sometimes they tend to do better actually at the clinic than at home, but it really depends on the cat. And some of them just, they just stay so still and they just sit there on the table. And some of the stories, like I, there was a, a kitty I acupunctured at home and we always did him on a a little table with a towel in the same place so that was his acupuncture spot and he had gone into the clinic for a teeth cleaning and when she brought him the home that night the kitty's person found him on the table he went and took a nap on the table where he got his acupuncture and she kind of thought oh wow he wants to feel better and this is where he's going because he's you know how you just feel after anesthesia and you know so he he just you know he wanted that and there was another kitty that always came out of her carrier when she saw me at the clinic. And when that kitty went, to, I was not her regular vet, when she went to her regular vet, and when she went to uh, Tufts because she saw an oncologist there, she had cancer, the woman had to kind of remove her, you know, from the carrier. But when she came for acupuncture, she came out by herself, and the, her person had to put her back in. And at the other two veterinary hospitals, she kind of couldn't get back in her carrier fast enough. And she did great for her acupuncture. So I've had many, many cats that do really well. But having said that, there's some cats that are just not going to be a candidate. (laughs) So it's one or the other. Yeah, I think on my crew, Dennis would be up for it. The other two, not so sure. And Mm -hmm. Jethro, Jethro, we're still, he's um, an outdoor feral kitty that is slowly going to be making his way into the home once we get him some treatment. So Mm -hmm. doing it slowly, because once he's in, we have a catio. So we're Hotel California. Once you're in, you're not getting out. Because (laughs) in our area, there's raccoons, there's coyotes, there's possums. 
I mean, he's okay. He has a house. He's right by the front. He stays, but alligators, not, I haven't seen any. We're in Fort Lauderdale area, so you never know what you're going to find. Right. It's a dangerous world out there for kitties. My kitties were, they were just here. That's how I adopted them. Molly was born on my doorstep. Oh, so. that's so sweet. Yeah, it was, it was kind of interesting. And it really gives you when you see things like that, and you realize that really, you know, you have to fix your cats. And there's some people that just don't. And, you know, we did the ear tip thing on Jethro's baby mama was Sammy, she since passed. But that's why he was outside because the baby mama would not do good inside he might. Uh, so. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of on the verge of that. Let's get back to your book. So Dr. Karen, in your book, you bring up your own personal story of your cancer. Why did you include this in your book? You also talked about your dog's cancer. And I could understand the dog and you had talked about other personal things in your book before, you know, with veterinary school and things you did. But this is kind of, it's your own illness. I'm glad you brought it up. It just makes everything more relatable. But why did you decide to include it in your book? Yeah, so I didn't want it to be a huge part of the story. So it, it was a little bit of a struggle to figure out where to put it. Um, because I didn't want to put it chronologic. Well, chronologically, it was it was after my dog had cancer, but I really felt that I learned from my dog and from my patients. And so I thought that was um, a valuable thing to include that, you know, I've seen many animals go through cancer treatment or other types of, I talk about a cat who had a leg amputated and did really well, you know, so other sort of serious medical issues. And I've often been struck by how well they do. And they don't have those sort of, you know, tapes going on in their head of anxiety, or what does this mean for my future? How am I going to pay for this? When can I go back to work? Whatever, whatever the things are, you know, is this gonna, you know, all these sort of mortality things, they don't think about that at that when they're going through things. And I feel like it's just a much better, you know, it's a challenge, certainly for a human to approach a medical condition like that. But if we can kind of aim for that, then I think it's it's really helpful. And it really helped me. Well, thank you for sharing that. I also found something in your book that stuck with me. And, you know, we you talked about a little bit about, you know, costs and people, you know, with whether they bring their cat to the vet or not. And you mentioned in the book, you said you didn't find a big difference on what a very wealthy person spends on their pet versus someone who's just getting by okay. They'll both spend what they need to spend. Yeah, absolutely. And going to people's homes, it's not like I'm looking at their bank balances. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to assess, you know, how much money they make or whatever. But, you know, when you're going to people's homes, you know, all the time, you know, it's interesting that somebody in a, say, a very large house, you know, it doesn't mean that they're there. They still may be saying, mm, you know, how much does this cost? Whereas someone in a, you know, sort of a, you know, small apartment or something might be their attitude might be more doesn't matter what it costs. And I feel like it's what I've sort of learned from that, that it's it's about the animal's value to us in terms of, you know, if you're if you're fortunate 
enough to have disposable income. If you don't have disposable income, then that's a different thing. And that's a big problem, obviously. But people with disposable income, people buy many things. You know, they buy a fancy car, they buy the latest tech, they buy clothes, they buy a sofa, they buy a trip to the casino, a vacation to Disney, all those things. And spending that money on your animal's health care is a, is a choice, you know, and sometimes it's a choice that people are judged for more than those, those other things. So I, I, you know, the people who had me come to their homes tended to be people that were very, that their animals were very important to them, that they were very committed to their animals health care. So it was just an interesting thing to to see that, you know, someone living in a big house didn't mean that they were going to say, oh, money's no object, you know, where sometimes, you know, that would be the case for someone who lived in a, you know, sort of a different neighborhood or whatever, small apartment, you know, I, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not judging, I'm not judging anybody's house, but it was just, you know, that's what I concluded was that it's really the the value of our animals to us in our lives that that sort of says how much people are are willing to spend you can't put a price on it i've had surprises with most of my pets surprise things that happen and you're here thousands of dollars like okay how am i going to make this work and you find a way you know absolutely absolutely and i've felt the same with my own animals it's of course i'm a veterinarian <laughs> but you know and i'm fortunate that many things are you know i i get to have at cost and and things like that but but still you know i've paid for quite a few pretty expensive tests that i don't get you know very much discount on at all and yeah if they're your family members you're gonna do what you need to do you know whatever you're able to do you're gonna do what you need to do what you're able to do and you're not gonna think twice thank you for answering that what do you hope that people get after reading your book it's like if there was one thing that you hope that you got the message across clearly what would that be I think it would be that people would feel seen and understood in their relationship with their animal, that this human-animal bond is such a wonderful thing and it transcends time. And, you know, so after our animal has died, that bond is still there, that relationship um, we remember for the rest of our lives. And that that is, it's perhaps more common than people realize. So I want people to not feel alone if they feel that they've had this or have an amazing relationship or several amazing relationships with their animals. So that's what I would like people to take from the book. I love that. Dr. Karen, this has been such a fun little over half hour time <laughs> talking with you. And I love your book. Where can people get your book? So it should be available on websites, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indie Books, and also uh, in bookstores. It should be in physical bookstores. So if you can support an independent bookstore, that's great. And my website also has links, and my website is karenfinedvm.com. And fine is F-I-N-E. Karen is K-A-R-E-N. Well, I want to thank you so much for writing this book for all of us pet people. Some of us are pet parents now, some of us just like pets and we don't have one now or thinking about it. So thank you for writing The Other Family Doctor and thank you so much for coming on Catitude. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure.
I hope you all enjoyed this show. I really love this book. It's called The Other Family Doctor, and it's by Dr. Karen Fine DVM. Her website is karenfinedvm.com. Check it out. You're going to love this book. And it's just a great book for any pet parent and a great gift for any pet parent. So um, I hope you take the time to look for it. Again, it's called The Other Family Doctor. And I want to thank my uh, all my kitties that have kept me going to the vet here and there, but overall have been pretty good patients. And that is Charlotte and uh, Molly and Dennis. Dennis is the one that's seen the vet the most because he had he had a scare way back and um, an expensive scare when he was really young, but we caught it in time. So one of the points I hope you take away today, don't wait, go to the vet. Cats are stoic creatures. They don't tell you when they're hurting until it's almost too late. And I unfortunately had that experience with Dennis because I was a new cat pet parent and didn't know better. Now, thank goodness, I know better 15 years later. So anyway, I'd like to thank Dr. Karen Fine for coming on Best Bets for Pets. Thanks to my crew, Nikki, Dennis, Charlotte, Molly, for teaching me all about pets and that super, you know, bond that we have. And, um, and they're all such different personalities. And I, I miss the ones that I've lost. But as Dr. Karen was saying, they're always with you in your heart. Um, thanks to everyone that's listening to Best Bets for Pets. I so appreciate it. And especially thank you so much to my producer, Mark Winter, for working the magic you work and making us sound so great on every show. So thank you so much. And remember, you never know what we're going to have next on Best Bets for Pets. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.